Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening music, it's by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore, and it's called Clarion Call, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Also, I just want to uh, give a shout-out. Uh, many of you may not know it is Lewy Body Awareness Month. Lewy Body is a type of dementia. There are many different types, so we want to be able to raise awareness um, all around the world regarding that. And for those of you that are new to our show, um, just know we're not about sound bites. We like to have sound information and in-depth conversations. So this is an hour-long talk show to really get you more specifics when it comes to any form of dementia. We love raising voices big and small around the world. This is also a live show, so you can call in to 323 870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. We just ask that you um, are respectful in your conversation. We love to hear your questions and your comments, and that we try to stay on topic of today's show, which is Mission Possible, Improving Dementia Care. And of course, uh, I have to thank all of our listeners in our community. You guys are so loyal and have really shared our brand footprint, and it helped build our community and sense of collaboration around the world. And, you know, to me, that's how we're going to fight this battle against dementia. So I really appreciate that and hope you will continue to like, click, and share. Now, recent shows that we had, I just want to mention, we had one on Living Smart, which was about estate planning with Catherine Holder. Uh, or hotter, and um, she has put together a book and a family binder that's amazing. I really recommend you take a peek at that. She is an estate planning attorney. We also talked about uh, duty of care versus dignity of risk, which was a fascinating conversation. And then we talked with MDVIP on brain health, and they have a brain health quiz that you can take. Uh, which I just, in fact, did the other day, which I found very informative and really highlighted some things that we don't normally talk about when it comes to dementia. And you can find that information on alzheimerspeaks.com on our homepage. And then, of course, I'd be amiss if I didn't give a shout out to Artist Senior Living in Woodbury. They have launched their Artist Way Memory Cafe. We had our first meeting last month. Um, We will have one the third Wednesday of each month, which is virtual, and everyone is welcome, no matter where you live around the world. So that'll be October 21st at 1 o'clock Central Time. You can get more information if you want to call uh, 612-200-0506. Otherwise, you can go to theartistway.com forward slash Woodbury events to find more information out about that. Um, On Alzheimer's Speaks uh, homepage, we also have a dementia caregiver survey, which was published by Cal Horn, who's a New Zealand student. Um, And then we have the Brain Health IQ by DVIP, which is also our homepage along with their then I I just, I adore oral health because they are allowing people to download two of their apps. One is Music First, the other is Coral Faith, for free during COVID. And then, of course, the MemoryCafeDirectory.com, which um, has over 900 cafes now listed. Cafes are for people with kind of early to mid-dementia along with their care partners. 
but they've also broken them down under Cafe Connect for those that are virtual. So before we introduce our guest today, I just want to let the foot bar walker um, give us Introducing the life-changing foot bar walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The foot bar walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The foot bar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the The foot bar walker is amazing. I can attest to that. I personally have uh, tried that out and uh, can't recommend it enough. Now, let's get to our guest today. Again, we are going to be talking about mission possible, not impossible, but mission possible in terms of improving dementia care. First, I want to uh, introduce you to Emily R. Grooms. She is a gerontologist with nearly 20 years of experience. And from 2007 to 2019, her focus was providing care for residents with complex dementias and advanced Parkinson's in the Dallas, Texas area. Emily's uh, specialty is in advanced services for Alzheimer's and dementia care. And today she brings those experiences to licensees in the form of consulting and resource planning to build exceptional dementia care models. She provides a um, compliance manual uh, to deal with all the regulations and is available for problem solving and staff development as well, both on site and in the moment. So Emily, I just want to welcome you to the show today. How are you doing? Doing very well, Lori. Thank you for having us. Well, good. I am going to introduce your sidekick here, and I will be right back to you. So next, I want to introduce uh, Joanne L. Garrett, um, who became involved in senior living and dementia care by invitation. You see, Emily asked her to help create what became the only successful freestanding dementia care communities in Dallas. And the pair looked for transformational ways to um, assure resident health and safety, which of course met family concerns as well as community concerns, but um, really added the critical path to happiness to meet resident needs. Now, Joanne understands that the last one begins with resident struggles and often ends in a piece of chocolate cake, (laughs) which I just thought was Hilarious because it's so true with a lot of high quality individual care that is necessary in between that struggle and that piece of cake. So welcome, Joanne. How are you today? I am fine, and I want to thank you. I've always considered this a Change the World program, Lori, and we're very pleased to have an opportunity to support your efforts today. Well, thank you for being here. I'm going to throw the first question to you, um, and it's one that I like to ask every one of my guests, Joanne, and that is, Uh have you been personally touched by your own family or circle of friends who have been diagnosed with a form of dementia? Not actually, until I heard Emily's clarion call. Um, My mother had a stroke uh, in the last six months of her life, and Um, There would have been some dementia coming along with that, vascular dementia probably, but heart condition took her away before that happened. But I did have the caregiving responsibility with my parents, and you're never ready. It's like bringing a new baby home from the hospital. You are just not prepared. (laughs) And um, when Emily called and said, this is my dream, I want you to be a part of this, because we'd had precursor activity and successes elsewhere, in business and community development. And I didn't think a second. I was delighted um, because it, it fit with my values and hers. It was a good mesh, and 
so my real experiences with dementia came at the houses where we were actually working. And the first thing I learned was everybody is who they are. And if you can make it possible for them to just be who they are, you're not going to have as much stress. You're not going to have as much complexity. Staff's going to be more at ease. That's your job. So that's what we tried to do. Yep. Acceptance is a true gift and it's something you would think we would um, all understand and appreciate, but uh, dementia kind of awakens that up. Uh, Emily, I want to ask you if you've been personally touched in your circle of family or friends with a diagnosis of dementia. Yes, I have. My mother actually developed um, very late. She had a brain tumor and eventually um, began to have um, forms of dementia behavior. But this was a long time ago and not much. I had to be on my own to take care of issues. I learned quickly that um, what was available was not going to be very helpful for her. And now I am also um, dealing with um, a, a close family member who has uh, had the beginnings of mild cognitive impairment, but it is it is developing into dementia. And of course, yeah. as Joanne said, we took care of folks in our our, our homes. Yep, wonderful. And it is uh, like Joanne said. It, there's nothing like hit, you know when it hits you personally. Boy, it just kind of really amplifies and makes you look from a whole nother angle. Um, And I hear that repeatedly from people around the world. I want to start with you in terms of questions and kind of speak on a a broad um, plane. So for our audience, um, can you please focus on people living with dementia, family members, and caregiving professionals themselves? And just tell us if you have seen in these groups um, any increase in stress, depression and anxiety, weariness and, and low morale, and just feeling isolated or that sense of intensified loneliness. Are you seeing in those three groups any of any of those things? Absolutely. I um I see it in my own family. I see it, I hear it and talk with um our clients and our colleagues, and of course, we are we are constantly surrounded with individuals who are having to deal with the stress, the grief, the anxiety, the, the frustration, the fear, all of these things, all of these, and you know they have been developing for a long time because care has not always been what it should be. And people didn't, and even individuals in their homes were having issues and trying to learn how to to better care for their loved ones. But now that we have the virus, it has exacerbated and brought to life the effects on not only residents, of course, but uh, those people who are in the living in at home, and then of course caregivers. And this is this is for people in general, not just for dementia, but especially for dementia. Um, as I mentioned, caring for my own mother many years ago, I saw the inadequacies of the care settings in senior care, and then recently taking care of my husband who died of cancer. I um, realized pretty quickly that I needed to do something and wanted to do something different. And so um, given the opportunity when I was uh, finishing my degree in gerontology, I was allowed to create my own program, and I was very interested in residential care. But I did this program in many different assisted living settings. I went into larger facilities uh, as shadowing individuals. I also volunteered with hospices and with other organizations. And I still wanted to do something beyond that. So that's when I decided it was important for us to start our own dementia certified facility. And so that's what we did. In 207, we opened up 
and we um, started what we call, we didn't have a name for it at that time, but we were doing person-centered care from the very get-go. Um, it was only later that w- we found out and, and knew that identification and that term. We learned from the best, and I know you know her, Lori, and that is Tipa Snow. And mm-hmm. um, her. obviously, I think probably all of your audience does. And if not, you do need to know her company is Positive Approach to Care. And I'm sure if all of those of you who know her, you know she's the guru. And so the same kind of way of taking care of folks was what we were doing. And we it was just solidified her voice um, and identification, you know, of how she was doing this and teaching us. It, it made it all much better for us and us teaching our staff um, working with the families and and with with our residents, we are we were a home, and um, and we were all family. Um, you know, uh, we had to fight the the medical model from being the only model for the longest time. You didn't you weren't concerned about the social aspects of what dementia might be doing to the individual. And, you know, we're seeing the resurgence of that in COVID. People are forgetting about what we need to do for the the mind, the soul, the spirit. And um, we're making regulations that are, in fact, following exactly the medical model. And and that needs to change. Yeah. um, you know, it, it's it's obvious we do need that. I'm, uh, I don't want to hear, hear from some of my th- my colleagues or whomever saying we we shouldn't be being doing anything to keep the virus out. Uh, I'm not talking about that, and I'm not talking about not uh, applying and integrating the medical model. But the social aspects of a person are as important, if not more important, in many cases. Well, and the the medical model should include, um, you know, healthy mental health. And I mean, that's a big piece of the pie and socialization is part of that uh, because we know these things we were talking about before, stress, depression, anxiety, um, that can lower the immune system, that can have all kinds of of repercussions. And so that does need to be taken in. Um, you had mentioned, you know, doing person care, person-centered care uh, before you knew the term, which I, 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 I kind of giggled to myself because, you know, I stepped into this too. And even though I, I sold real estate and I worked with a lot of assisted livings and nursing homes and stuff, it still wasn't a term that I was overly, I guess, comfortable with or familiar with. And to this day, I, I, between you, well, between you and my audience, um, I, I don't really even like the term just because I think it's overused and underdelivered. And I really think we need to talk right. about a person, um, basically relationship-based care, really getting to know the person, know their feelings, know their likes, their dislikes, because that's a lot what TIPA talks about is validating where they are. And um, one of the things she's so good at is putting it in everyday real life um, examples. So it's not this fluff. It's not this medical model. Wah, 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 wah. It's uh, sometimes saying a swear word, sometimes smacking somebody because those things happen in real life and not putting them down, but just saying, this is how we deal with these things um, in a really respectful way. Now, um, now more than ever, you know, we really have to transform our model of care. We have to improve health and wellness for all older adults, people with dementia, families and their care partners, as well as the staff. And COVID-19 seems to really be fueling a need for uh, something you guys term emotional first aid. Can you speak to that and what that emotional first aid really means to, to you and and Joanne as a company. 
I think you're uh, addressing that to Joey Ann. I can. I, I was this one. I was still um, going to oh, okay. um, address you, Emily. I'm sorry. I wasn't clear on that. Okay. Are you sure? Are, sure. Um, you know, the way that we took care of individuals. You're talking about not using that terminology, and I'm. I'm glad about that because it is overused and people don't know what it means, person-centered. We saw it as bringing everyone to the table. And that does give some kind of a a Band-Aid to some people, hopefully more of this, this emotional aid to the, not only the residents, but particularly for the, the staff and for the families and anyone involved with our residents or, you know, this means, for example, I love giving our stories, our examples. We, we ensured that, that the individuals that we took care of were often in control when, and I'll use our, some of the people if that's okay, you know, sure. Louise, Louise is my favorite, and her family would not mind, and no one would, would know her last name, but she ran the house. When anyone came in, they had to go to her first because it was her house. She would check them out. And when we had staff meetings, all of the residents that wanted to be involved, and these people are various state. Uh, I don't like to use the word stages like Tita says. I like to use journey. They would be at the table. Many of them would, in fact, be involved. And you better give them an agenda. You better give them the test. You better ask them questions. And often families would be involved in the same way. They knew what we were doing. They knew what kind of engagement we were doing. And often they were involved themselves. So it, it's a matter of, of treating the individual, regardless of where they are in that journey of dementia, as the person they were. So you must know who they were. We had a lady who had gotten, was supposed to come and be with us, and she decided to get married, and she moved out of town. Her daughter, had she had been one of the first people to come to our house to have her mother come in, and she The daughter came and was laughing and said, well, she's gotten married and moved away. Well, at some point, that did not work. But she came back to us, and the the staff was a little befuddled because she didn't want to wear a nightgown. She didn't want to wear pajamas. And so we had to say, well, ladies, I'm sorry. Do you realize this lady has just been married for a little while? And obviously, intimacy is still very much a part of her life. It changed the way they responded because we had discussed what was going on in her life. And they had been trained and knew that this is the kind of way we should respond to someone. We let them be who they were. When they had traumas, we tried to respond. We are always constantly saying, I'm sorry. And can you help me when something became too difficult? But you know what was most important in terms of of this, this emotional aid to them, their families, was we would have situations where family members would come in and maybe we would sing and maybe we would talk, but, but everybody was always involved and there was always laughter. And even when someone was terribly upset, if you could make them laugh, cause laughter, tell a body joke, they often got it. You know, they were were on top of the things a lot of the time. And emotional aid for them, for their families. I'll I'll tell you the story of uh, one lady who, my my tall German ex-nun, who, you know, social norms, we think they're all gone. But they're not, even until the end. And I read from my second grade catechism in Latin to her 
I'm sorry, it makes me cry. That's as okay. She dying, as she was dying, and um, she turned to me, and it wasn't words she was really able to say. It was more mouthing and a whisper. But she said, thank you. And her family also came in. It was kind of funny for the caregivers because many of them obviously did not know Latin, and they were standing out in the hall listening. And then, But they did love it, and they appreciated it, and they continued to do that for her. Mm-hmm. So this is what we mean by emotional aid. And same thing with families. We did the same thing for them. Yeah. Well, and, you know, don't apologize for getting emotional. I I truly believe that we don't change until we have been touched on an emotional level. I I, I think right. the, the power of our commitment, the power of our insight, the power of our perceptions, our ability to get in there and get people to understand when you're that authentic, when you're that vulnerable yourself, allows others to feel stuff that they've stashed and take a true look on what's going on. I, uh, you know, everything that I teach, I call it emotional-based training because, again, I don't think we're going to make the shift and tell people to feel it at that heart level. And so, you know, thank you for sharing that emotional story. I think it's I think it's really really important. I have one other question uh, for you, Emily, before I jump over to Joanne, and that is, you know, the CDC talks a lot about mitigating disease and infection control, which, my God, that is a definite need. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like we really need to focus on and against this loneliness. This has been such a a huge, huge factor. And you had, you know, mentioned humor, um, you know, when we were just talking. And I got a, it was interesting. I, uh, for those of you who may know him, uh, Elon Caspi is a behavioral specialist, and he just sent me over a study, um, quali- a qualitative study of shared experience of humor between people with dementia and their partners. And they were just saying, how important humor is um, to be able to still have, to be able to find, to be able to create in terms of adapting to the disease. And it makes us, I think, all feel less lonely when we can laugh together. So in narrowing things down a bit, how and why is COVID so dangerous to people with various types of dementia, Emily? Well, it is necessary for us to mitigate. In my mind, uh, loneliness has become really a, another chronic disease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't need to say this, but I will, because some people, you know, they they don't really feel it. I can remember in my first social psych class, um, the textbook was called The Social Animal. And, you know, biologically, that's what we are. We mm-hmm. we cannot flourish. We can't flourish alone. Um, we, we crave connectedness. Um, you know, it's maybe some old cusses who, who want to be by themselves, but we had several of them, and, and they grew to, to want our attention and to laugh, and we could make them laugh. Um, when they were ornery, as we said, um, I, I use one, Harry. Harry was b- about six four and a half and had a wingspan, and he was constantly flailing at everybody. And finally, I just said, "Okay." I stood aside and hands on hips and just looked at him, and I said, "Are you finished?" And he smiled. He didn't want to smile, and he tried to keep it from. But I said, "Oh, I got it." And so from then on, we would make him laugh. He needed mm-hmm. that. He desperately needed to be able because he had been brought, had been in many facilities and had been drugged over and over. And he, we became, we eventually became his family. But, you know, um, I, I said we can't flourish. Isolation, obviously, is a state of being alone, and um, but it creates loneliness. And loneliness is, is that emotional response to, to being isolated and 
that feeling you have. And this is this is rampant in our society among elders, not just with dementia. You know, some researchers, some some pundits um, go as so far as to to say contacts and and interaction are just as important to our overall health and, and well being as proper health care, as uh, nutrition, food, uh, hydration, yeah. water, you know. Uh, I, I had a study just recently, an NIH study in 2019, saying that, it's, and, and we're seeing it, it's proven and, and playing out now in the pandi- pandemic, that isolation causing loneliness, and you mentioned it, you, some of these can and does lead to chronic illnesses. We see um, people are at risk for depression and anxiety and high blood pressure and um, heart disease, fatigue. We could go on and on. Yep. You said it affects your immune system. And we know now that it affects your, your cognitive ability. We've seen decline, which can lead to dementia and even death. And I just read a, a, another article by... Um, a group of, of researchers, Holt et al., from 2010, and they said that there was an increase in death from loneliness by 50%. If you yeah. were alone, you had to increase it as much as that. And so, yeah. you know, we rush, we rush to give fluids because we want people not to be dehydrated, and of course. And in right now, we rushed on our PP, all kinds of PPE, so we, we're making ourselves safe and trying to get masks on folks. And, and you know, that's a, a joke for dementia people. But, you know, we've abrogated our duty, and I see this consistently, anything to do about the, the diminishing of the spirit of, of the, the selfhood the essence of being a human, um, their spirit, their soul. And we are seeing those results. I have so yeah. many of our colleagues calling and saying, what can I do? My, you know, and, and, and their family members who we, many of them we also know are, are, are also calling, what can we do? We can't see them. You know, yeah, I- many people. Many people see it as solitary confinement, and you know, we've known for many years that even the hardened criminal will be affected by uh, isolation, you know, and and um, one thing I, I, I want to throw out to the, the providers out there, and I'm sure 90% of them, and they'll be laughing and shaking their head, this is not so much just about loneliness, isolation, but what people feel when they are taken into a facility or they're lonely or feeling alone, even if they're with people. You know, they ask us consistently. We had people asking, what did I do to be put in this jail? What was mm-hmm. my crime? What, what, what is it that I did? You know, but it, it, anyway, um, Tipa talks at length about, you know, she and I quote her often that you know she said social distance is not logical, reasonable, or attainable. You know, I, I remember, as I mentioned, Louise. Louise would have smacked me upside of the head if I tried to make a wear a mask. And it's funny because I could just imagine her saying, "What do we got? A bunch of bank robbers in this joint, or <laughs> bandits?" Everybody's in a mask. What are they trying to do? I can't be here. You know what? What's going on? And I, I think it's, it's. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's. I think it's unconscionable to try to make people be socially distanced. They can't. They've lost the filters for a lot of things. Is dementia folks, but they don't lose the filter for that need, that human connectedness, that need for contact, for hugging. You know, that was one of the things. You were in our house, you're going to get hugged. You're going to be loved. Yep, and I I think that's critically important for 
for people to to have those needs met. I think one of the gifts kind of wrapped in COVID is actually getting people to understand the importance of the human connection. I, I've seen it with families devastated not being able to see their parent or their spouse or their their friend or their loved one and um, worried about decline. Are they going to see them again uh, before one of them might die? Are they, are they going to recognize them? All of these things are worrisome. And yet um, one of the interesting things that I've uh, seen repeatedly is people living with dementia have kind of been forced to switch their life over to a virtual mode. And many of those living with dementia say, hey, we got a head start. We can teach the rest of the world how to do this and how to do this well, if anyone would just ask us. Um, so it's really important to meet that emotional need to talk about quality of life. Is, is life worth living if you're not connected? Um, we each need to ask ourselves that big time. And how would we feel? How do we respect that and still keep everybody safe? I want to go to uh, Joy Ann. And I know um, you tend to focus on aspects of support care, but my understanding is that you're also interested in how and when and where and why uh, caregiving organizations can grow better, you know, within themselves. And so in light of that, I'd really like to talk a little bit with you um, about staff retention and development and how that fits into the puzzle, Joy Ann, of quality care. And I can't believe we we only we have less than 25 minutes left. We've been going strong here, and I want to make sure I pull you into the conversation here. So, how how well, do you see things um, in in terms of needing change in those areas? Time is very fleeting, and and we're having a good time, so it, that's even more so. I would like to before I answer that, just return to one thing that Emily was saying. The, the setting for an assisted living, whether licensed or not, is activity-based, always has been. And the staff has a certain live wire in terms of the way many react to residents with a mixture of optimism and skill, which I see Emily and Tipa Snow bring into the room, and, and some highly skilled staff. And at the same time, you've got that biomedical thing clicking that you guys were talking about. And, you know, we need a TV show like Modern Family, it, and the title should be, and this is way too long, but it should be, I can't take care of you because I'm so busy taking care of you, because that's the staff's lament, and that's one of the things that creates an organizational challenge and leads to retention problems, leads to um, burnout and compassion fatigue, things that we talk a lot about and, and hardly ever have time to address, and so thanks for giving me a chance to talk about that organizational package. I appreciate that. Um, our retention for our original house was over eight years on average. And that's not just a unicorn. That is a purple unicorn with polka dots. It's just unheard of. And it's a package. It is, it is something that was put together and the pieces were put in place Originally, perhaps not consciously, but as time went on, it certainly was. And, and I'd like to bring this forward to people that are scratching their heads because they're struggling with turnover and, and the ensuing difficulties and challenges that that brings for everybody. And the first thing that, that came into our properties was respect for what the staff brings to the job because 75 to 85% of what is needed to do the job, they know. And if you can respect that and top that off, with resident-directed skill and deal with structure and process and outcome so they can do their best job, you've made a difference for everybody. And they're feeling a whole lot better when they leave the, the, the building that day. We tried in, in wherever we could to train for new issues. The staff knew the old issues. They knew the basics. So we tried to bring in the new stuff. And there was a fair amount of eye-rolling from time to time um, because you've – if you listen to Emily, she's talking about journals, she's talking about research, she's, she's always aware of what's going on out there and trying to bring it in. And part of the package was we made some sacrifices in terms of income to assure that they had a living wage. It wasn't as much as we wanted, but it was as much as we could do. 
They had full fringe benefits, and that included insurance, affordable care, let us do that. We saved some lives doing that. Two or three people wouldn't have survived if they hadn't gone on affordable care when they did. And that wall comes together to show respect. You know, I'm singing Aretha here because there's a mission there that we wanted to communicate. There's respect there that we wanted to communicate. And there's a responsibility that they understood and and could step into. And that makes a tremendous amount of difference when you can reward that. Um, And it came down to little things like setting shift schedules on, uh, so it was off traffic time. Well, that makes it easier for everybody, um, and they can deal with their, their, you know, not have to spend two hours on the road every day because we're in a high-traffic-density city. And at the same time, it meant that they were there. There wasn't a busy shift change when the families typically were there. And that gave the families time to talk to them about what was going on. And that because that they're the guys in the foxholes. They're the ones who really knew what was happening with the individual residents and the people that they loved. So by not having the shift change in a time that was right smack in the middle of the times that most families chose to come and go, we gave the families the keypad number. And they were invited to come and go at will. We, the only thing we asked was don't give it to anybody under 25 because that's a young person and they may not be thinking about the elders who live in that house. And please don't, you know, if you're coming late at night, give a shout out because somebody may be busy and may not realize you're, you're in that house be kind to them but that's part of the package to bring all of those things together and then the the thing we found that was very very important in creating that responsibility and building on that and taking it to pride was staff development Um, it was important to build on that live process that I, I mentioned a minute ago it was it's live in terms of the way people talk to each other and that some of the nicest moments in those houses would be lingering after breakfast or lunch at the table with coffee or iced tea. It's the South. We drink iced tea. <laughs> and just talking, just, just chit-chatting the way they would in their own home with their own wife, husband, family, and children. And they, sometimes those conversations would go for two hours. And everybody would look at each other and say, well, it's time for lunch. I guess we'll just stay <laughs> and eat lunch. Mm-hmm. Because they were having a good time. They were able to be themselves. And so we could build on that live process. And that was an important part because, you know, we talk about individualized care. There's always been a lot of a heavy message about that. Then person-centered care comes on the scene. Well, that's individualized care, just broken down into a little more detail. Probably it's going to evolve into resident-directed care. And that, if that's the case, then the key relationship in an assisted living community is the relationship between the staff and great staff and the residents and meeting the residents' needs. We had people come in who, in my view, had been abused, and they were having struggles at another place, often because something was happening that they couldn't handle. And they were grown up with dementia, And none of us can really fit our brains into what that means. But maybe they had pain. Maybe they were ill. Maybe somebody was uh, uh, denied their dignity or was angry or confrontational with them. Well, what do you do when you have dementia? You act out. You have something to say about it because you're a grown-up and you've always been able to do that or for a long time. And so who gets the blame for acting up and acting out? The resident. So then we get the call. You know, this this just can't go on. We Emily mentioned someone who'd been to well over 20 different institutions in a three- or four-year period because of acting up, acting out. Well, he came to us, and we made it a point to not do the things that were disturbing and upsetting to him. And he was very upset. It took, took a couple of months for him to really relax and trust the situation and the people. Uh, but his family continued to visit regularly. The food was good. The house was nice. It was okay, you know, and gradually, you know, he realized this is a good place. They're not going to hurt me. They're not going to do the things that were done to me. Mm-hmm. For you know, I don't know that he knew this the last three years, but there's there's just so much of a dynamic in dealing with that whole person. And if we take it to resident directed care, then that means the staff and the resident are the essential 
binomial in, you know element the two the two that are most important and the thing that was interesting to me about the staff and that we always tried to reward is everybody was their own person everybody had their own bag of tricks and capabilities and limitations as do we all but the miraculous thing was and those people had worked together for a long time they balanced each other out so their their skills and abilities and the areas where they needed to be shored up it just worked it was like any other intense relationship but this was a business relationship in that in that care home setting so we always tried to establish person-centered care we always tried to establish relevant directed care because we realized the essential element was the staff in that resident and that in turn was an essential element in the platform of the foundation that sense of confidence and self-respect in what they did and I, I truly believe that that was a huge element in why they stayed with us for such a long time. Oh, I'm I'm sure it was. And again, I think that's one of the things COVID is bringing to light is the the need for us as a society to respect jobs that have been overlooked and undervalued. Um, you know, we're seeing that from grocery workers to gas oh, station yeah. attendants yeah. to truck drivers to to our our direct line of care. You know, it's not just the doctors and the nurses. It's everybody. It's food service. It's maintenance. is part of the team. And without that team clicking together, you know, things get derailed. I love the idea that you guys changed the shift so they could avoid traffic. Because when you are under pressure, trying to get through, I mean, I know I live in, in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis area. And sometimes I can get someplace in 20 minutes. And sometimes it'll take me an hour and a half. And I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. And yeah. that added stress as an employee to get to work on time, to not jeopardize your employment, um, I mean, that whole burden in and of itself, conscious or not, makes a difference in the attitude in which someone walks in the door. And Absolutely. as yeah. and as we've talked many times on this program, uh, residents uh, and staff alike will mirror that attitude back to us that we're projecting, even though we put the Stepford wife smile on and we think we're hiding it. The rest of our body language is saying, hey, I am maxed to the hilt with anxiety. <laughs> and yet Bristle, we always yeah. what we always talk about is pointing back to the resident for them having a reaction and yet, you know, their reaction is normal. We would, we would be doing the same thing if we didn't feel safe, if we didn't feel comfortable, those reactions are clues. They are, they're there to tell us something isn't right because the person may not be able to verbalize that. And we have to look deeper instead of just saying, oh, give me a PRN, give me a pill. You know, they're, they're wigging out. It's like, no, um, we often are the triggers in taking on that responsibility and, you know, shadowing people and figuring out what are those triggers or, or asking. Sometimes we just, we just have to ask. I love that you talked about the normalcy of just chit-chatting allowing people to be who they are and not, you know, fit them into this box, but letting them communicate human to human and at a, at a heartfelt level. Um, all of those things are just, are so, so important. Now we have also talked in the past and now just listening to both you and Emily, um, I have to say that your, you know, combined responses show this wonderful and diverse base of knowledge that the two of you have. And Joanne, uh, can you tell us the range of services that you can bring through your company, which is called Memory Care Consultant, not only to residents, but to licensees and operators and family and staff alike? Well, like most uh, licensees and, and operators, you have to do it all. And so 14 hours a day for many years, we did it all. Um, and that wasn't seven hours a piece, by the way. That, <laughs> the typical day was, was a long day. And it was an exciting, interesting day. And as, as I've said, Emily approached her relationships with residents and staff as a blend of skill and optimism. She, she had that, that ability. I'm, I'm more laid back and I, I just work with the situation and pretty neutral. But to have somebody on site 
who brings that forward is 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 truly wonderful. Um, but you learn from that. You learn a lot about problem solving. And both of us had good career backgrounds coming in. We're former college professors and have done a variety of worn a variety of other hats. So when we came into licensed assisted living, I got to say we didn't know what we were getting into. Maybe she did, but I didn't. Certainly mm-hmm. the the burden of the administrative load with the licensing agency. Texas has is pretty strict compared to many other states. Um, and new people coming in don't have any idea what they're going to be picking up and expected to um, excel at in terms of that administrative load. It's, it's huge. Um, the financial load, the process of getting licensed, hey, costs you a lot more money than you think it's going to. Absolutely mm-hmm. does. And so we've been there, and we can help people sidestep some of those puddles that we didn't just step in and we rolled in <laughs> because people make mistakes. And our learning curve was about an 87-degree angle. We were flying straight up on our learning curve. It wasn't any sedate little five or seven degrees. And so that's what we bring. We can help with startups. Um, we can help with compliance issues during startup and through the life of the operation. We can help with problem solving. And one of the things that was interesting to me, we've always been members of the Texas Organization of Residential Care Homes, and that's the ubiquitous, all-purpose organization in Texas that supports small assisted livings. And we learned a lot from them. We learned a lot with them. And problem solving is not as well mixed in the society as you would like. A lot of people come in with a services background, health care. They don't realize the, the levels of um, attention and business skills that they're going to be required to have. I have often said that, that my ideal client is a registered nurse with an MBA, and that's still not true because he or she may not have that human-centered focus that it makes it so essential um, in having a good house mm-hmm. and having a house where there's happiness. So we can, you know, we can roll with the punches. We can show people how to do that. We provide compliance manuals, online training, in-person training. You have, our licensing agency recently put together uh, an automated system to renew licensing, and now it takes COVID and emergency reports through the same system. Well, that donkey has had a broken leg from the day it began. It's really hard for the providers and licensees to get through that system. Um, and so, you know, we can help with that. There are just, we've been there. So we know what those difficulties are and we can address them in real time and meet real needs. And I think that's, that's an important thing because we know how hard it is and we respect the people that are trying to do it. And you can get so caught up in the administrative load and the operational load that you lose track of the human responsibilities that brought you in in the first place. Yeah, And that's why I used that phrase earlier, I, I can't take care of you because I'm so busy taking care of you. It doesn't just apply to the staff. It applies to everybody that has a relationship in that operation because you are so busy. You've got to be pretty critical about what you're choosing to be busy with because there's there's 433 things out there in your atmosphere that also need your attention. And yeah. I don't think people realize any of that coming in. They They think they're going to do good. And have a fulfilling career, and things are just going to work smooth and beautiful. It's tough. Yep. Yeah, it's smooth tough. and beautiful yeah. would be nice, but not necessarily yeah. realistic. So, you know, that's what we try to do is just give opportunities to build better days, and that's for the resident, the staff, and the licensee. Because if that licensee is happy, it's like the phrase about if mama's happy, the family's happy. Because if you can support that licensee, then he or she can do a better job supporting the staff where the real work is done. Now, you know, senior living uh, and people in the know in that industry are really concerned about COVID-19 and disaster planning and climate change and technology. I mean, there's so there's so much stuff going on right now. Um, where where do you think the services and and care for our elders is really going, especially given um, the COVID-19 is driving so many of those changes. 
We've got about five minutes left to go there. Five minutes. Make it quick. Okay. (laughs) First, I would say that in in the, the days of COVID and in the days of climate change, emergency planning, disaster planning, COVID planning, is the, the highest priority. It's real. You, we, we were looking at 60 Minutes Sunday, the, the saga of the forest fires, and that's just the beginning. Texas mm-hmm. has been dealing with hurricanes, tornado, tornadoes, Florida, hurricanes, hurricanes, hurricanes. We're going to be carrying a heavy load. So one of the things that we offer that's key, I think, for people is disaster prep and COVID manuals, and it includes staff training magazines that are really cool. They're clever, they're colorful, and they're interesting. The other thing is we've got the capacity to deliver compliance services and get people started. So that's a vital and important element in in the whole process. Everything is changing. You know, we should be, COVID should unite us, and it's, that's true as a, as a nation, as, as it is in a household, and yet we are so busy that sometimes we're just, you know, we're coming to work, scrapping as quick as we can and, and going on. The technology is moving fast. COVID is bringing changes. A lot of the architects are talking about uh, having meals in rooms and having activities in rooms. This is particularly applicable to larger properties and facilities. Um, they're talking about being able to close off sections of the house, have smaller sections and or smaller houses and have several houses in a, in a location. Well, the very things they're talking about are things that engender isolation and withdrawal and loneliness and rejection. Yeah. Because as Emily mentioned, we are penguins. We are used to being in a tribe and that's not going to work, but that's coming on pretty strong because they're worried about if we have another pandemic, we need to be better equipped to save lives in this building. So there's the technology is moving fast. It's going from information services and services to operate the buildings and um, brain plasticity, lots of interesting things are going on, but the architecture is kind of falling into the traditional care model that's not working. I noticed a couple of months ago, and I I need to verify this, but the source I was reading said that for the first time, small assisted living residents exceeded in total numerically the number of people in nursing facilities. Now, that's a big change because Mm -hmm. small assisted living started in the late 80s. So that's a 40-year title shift that says something about what families want. And, you know, most of all, they want to be at home. So you're seeing multi-generational households developing. You're seeing families change their house, building a cabana or whatever for mom and dad. They're they're bringing in, you know, the, the multi-generational situation with kids stay home for college and help taking care with taking care of the parents. There's more home care. Uh, there's more eco-friendly homes. I think one of the things that will happen is we're going to see more um, antimicrobial services and better air exchange systems where we can clean up the air before people have to breathe it. There are going to be some really good things that happen that, that where we respond to the pressures that are out there um, and they are demanding our attention. So yep. you're going to see the small houses coming together. Uh, and trying to find ways to do that safely. You're going to see the larger properties probably creating smaller units within that larger property in an effort to engender that relationship that we've talked about between the residents and and, and talented staff. So there's a lot of changing, and, you know, the $15 an hour wage is coming. There are going to be, in the next 10 years, there needs to be 75% more caregivers than we currently have to take care of the boomers. So this is a very volatile business. This is not, well, I'm just going to check out and be retired on a job and run an assisted living. Mm -mm. You're going to be busy. Exactly. I, um, I just want to thank both of you, um, Emily and Joanne for joining us today. This has been a really interesting conversation and I'm sorry to say we're running out of time here. Uh, you can get a hold of these ladies by going to their website, mcconsulting.online, mcconsulting.online. Uh, and you can also um, reach them by phone at 214 277 
I'm sorry, 2413, as well as, uh, and that was Joanne's number. Uh, Emily's number is 214-529-3820. And again, their contact information is on the show page. Thank you all for joining us today, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Bye now. Thank Thank you so much. So much. Bye. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.